Good morning, Mountain Park. How are we? Wonderful. So glad to hear that you are excited for this beautiful day just like I am. Um, <clears throat> my name is Dave Shrine, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, I typically work with the youth over there, but this morning I am over here uh, sharing something that is just welling up inside of me that I am so fired about to get to talk with uh, you today, to share with you today. We are talking about uh, the end. We are talking in this whole shebang series. We've been looking at the entire story from beginning to end. And now we are at the part, we come to the part where we conclude the story looking at the book of Revelation. And so uh, before, it's one of my most favorite stories in all of scripture. As a matter of fact, it is my most favorite story in all of scripture. But before we get into it, I want to go ahead and pray for us and then we will do it. So uh, if you would pray with me. God, thank you so much for who you are and what you've done, the leadership that you took, taking it upon yourself to do the things for us that we could not do for ourselves. And Lord, I pray here and now that in the, in the fun parts of this teaching, the exciting parts of this teaching, Lord, that we would just praise your name and that we would just be so grateful uh, for everything that you have given us. And in the difficult parts of the teaching, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be receptive uh, to all ultimately become more and more like you, Jesus. We are um, looking forward to what you have to say, and we ask that this time would be profitable, that it would not uh, return void the time that we invest here and now, but that you would use it for your purposes and to build your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So um, this morning, we're talking about the White Rider from Revelation 19.11, the White Rider. It is one of my, it is my most favorite story, my most favorite character, and uh, if you're not familiar with the White Rider, there could be all sorts of different thoughts that come into your mind of what that character is. Now, when I sat down and I started thinking about it, I was like, what other things do I think about when I think of the White Rider? The first thing that comes to my mind, and I am ashamed to admit this, I know you won't judge me, you will continue to love me, and we will continue to be friends, but the first thing that came to my mind was the actor Ryder Strong, who played Sean Hunter in the television series Boy Meets World. Yep, there he is. Ryder Strong, uh, for some reason, it, he pops into my mind. He was what I would consider the quintessential 15, 16-year-old boy that he had huge lines of girls lining up to date him in the movie or in the television show and in real life. And I looked at him and I thought, you know what? The source of his power, the source of his allure is, is almost like a mini Samson. It comes from his flowing hair. And I was like, if I could just get hair like Ryder Strong, then I too would have the long lines of 14, 15 year, I was 14 and 15 at the time, 14 and 15 year old girls lining up to, to, to want to date me, whatever dating looked like at that time, whatever it was, they would want to date me, and so, um, and so it, it was the mid-90s, the butt cut was huge, everyone who was everyone was getting that haircut, and so I was like, you know what, if I could just somehow attain that then I too could be the writer strong of my school. The other thing that comes into my mind, and if you have young kids, particularly younger girls, you, you will resonate with this, um, the character Flynn Rider, who of course is the lead male role in the Disney animated character, or in the Disney animated film, Tangled, that's right. If you, uh, I have a, uh, a four-year-old and a two-year-old niece, and uh, they don't even call, uh, the, the, Tangled is the story of Rapunzel, and they don't even call Rapunzel by her name, they just call her Tangled, and she is huge right now. Tangled is at the top of the charts in popularity with the three to six-year-old young girl demographic. So 
popular right now that the longest line that my family and I experienced when we were in Disneyland in September was, the, was a two-hour wait to see Tangled, to see Rapunzel. And so my niece, who has no idea what 10 minutes is, she's like, sure, let's wait two hours. And so they waited. She got her picture taken. And for the rest of the day, she was flying on cloud nine. This morning, though, we're not talking about these uh, so-called heartthrobs, the Ryder Strongs or the Flynn Riders. This morning, we are talking about the White Rider. And just to let you in so, you, so the rest of the message makes sense, the White Rider is Jesus. So this morning, we are talking about Jesus. And... Uh, <clears throat> Let's see here. This morning, we are talking about Jesus. We are not talking about easy celebrity to follow. We are talking about a king. We are talking about a leader. We are talking about a leader who is worth following with every single thing we have in our beings. But if we were to bring this to the foot of our culture, I bet they would say it's more fun and it's easier and more exciting to talk about the heartthrob. That it's more fun and it's easier to talk about celebrity. To talk about the characters that have charisma and allure and power and those who have sex appeal. You see, uh, we have magazines and television shows and blogs and we even have a news network dedicated solely for the purpose of reporting and telling the story of these, un these larger-than-life celebrities. It's very interesting to us. And again, I am ashamed to admit this, but perhaps you've experienced this too. I don't really do the tabloid thing. If you do, that's fine. I'm not really into the tabloids. But I do admit that when I stand in line at Fry's to get donuts or mac and cheese or whatever it is I'm buying, that looking at that tabloid right there and seeing that something new is happening in the life of Jennifer Aniston is a little bit tempting for me to go ahead and reach forward and fold to the rest of the story. I don't do it. I don't do it. One day I may actually give in, but I, I, it, there's just something appealing about it, even for me, somebody who doesn't really find myself fascinated with the things of celebrity. But it's something that is so ingrained in our culture that, yes, it's easy to talk about and say, well, that's, that's larger than life, that's bigger, that's not really everyday stuff. Oh, I think it might be a little bit of everyday stuff. Let's talk about this. I, I would use this example and say, I have been working with students, and, uh, with students for the past decade. And there is one truth, one reality about them that rings true from year to year to year to year. No matter what group it is, no matter, you know, what is happening in culture, there is one truth. And this truth is this. We have some of the sweetest, most lovely young girls who love Jesus in our group. But for some reason, they are drawn and they choose to date boys who, for lack of a better term, their decisions lead, them, lead me to believe that they're kind of leading a loser lifestyle. Now, if you have a 15, 16-year-old girl who's dating age, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. As a matter of fact, you probably have a picture in your mind of the last time your little baby brought home this 16-year-old boy, and you thought, yeah, I know exactly, I'm tracking with you, Dave. And you might even be playing the scenario over in your mind just to reassure yourself that, did, did I show him all of the medals that I won when I was in the military? Is he aware of those? Or... Did I show him my hunting room and all of the trophies that I have and how easy it is for me to go out and find what I, what I want to find? Or, or maybe even, is he aware that I am an avid weaponry collector? You're playing that over in your mind. But for some reason, these young girls wind up choosing these boys that for them, leadership is you know, accomplishing building a guild in World of Warcraft. Or forward progress is building their online gamer score playing Halo and Xbox Online. They pass over these boys who are just, who, who are sweet, who 
who have a job and have Jesus. Now, men, if your daughters are getting into dating age and you're trying to build the criteria by which you want the boy to meet, start with a job and start with Jesus. Everything, if they've got those two, everything else tends to fall into place. Job and Jesus. But they pass over these sweet boys and they wind up going with these, with these boys who is just like, man, get your act together, pal. And, you know, they... They're just attracted to the, the Ford F-350, you know, lifted six inches up off the ground. You're like, what is that when it pulls into your driveway? Who is this guy? And I think it's all an effort in pointing to we are attracted to kind of the, the facade, the outside, the allure of excitement, the allure of charisma, the allure of power. These boys, they're, they're the popular ones. They're the ones that all of the other, they're the writer strongs. They want to get behind these, bo- these other girls and have their turn dating them. Now, if that doesn't ring true, perhaps this example will. Whenever we get into a political season, what winds up happening is they line up all the candidates. And you go through and you expect candidate after candidate after candidate. And you hear what they have to say. And if you're like me, there always winds up being a candidate who you listen to and you say, I really like what he has to say, or I like what her plans are when she gets into office. But then it's quickly followed up by this phrase, but I just don't think he can win, or she just doesn't look presidential to me. And so we wind up going with that more charismatic, the candidate who has the look of whatever office he or she is trying to get. We are just attracted to things that help us pass over the things that matter, that help us pass over substance, that help us pass over and ignore uh, truth. You see, just as it is with us, us being attracted to the iconic celebrity type figure or the iconic, you know, everything appears he has everything going for him figure, so it was with the Jewish nation in the days of Jesus. You see, prior to Jesus arriving on this earth, The Jewish leaders had been anticipating a Messiah. The Jewish nation had been waiting on this Messiah who would come and who would restore the kingdom of Israel, who would strike down all of the other nations who had persecuted God's chosen people. They had in their mind a heartthrob coming down and setting up an earthly kingdom. And what they ultimately wanted to do was repeat the mistake of King Saul. Now, if you, if you remember, King Saul was the first king that Israel had ever had. Up until, up until King Saul was uh, inaugurated, Jesus, or God, had been the king over Israel. But they said, no, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king too, and, and we want King Saul. Why? Well, because King Saul is what we would consider, not the writer strong, he was more the Brad Pitt of his day, Okay. But not, not, the, uh, not the Brad Pitt from uh, 12 Monkeys where he was all weird and kind of gross and everything. But the Brad Pitt from Legends of the Fall, right? This one. This is, who that, this is who they were after. King Saul who was tall and strong and had the Fabio-like golden locks coming down from the top of his head. They wanted to put this type of leader back in because they thought that that would, that would be an extension of their power and their allure and their sex appeal. Well, King Saul ultimately failed because King Saul was not a leader worth following. He lacked the necessary characteristics of a godly man seeking out the Lord's will before his own, and his kingdom ultimately was turned over to the younger, less picture of a king called David. Um, so <clears throat> so it, it would be understandable, though, for them to be a little bit upset because they're expecting King Saul But instead, they get Jesus. They're expecting a king in power. Instead, they get a humble, marginalized servant coming from Galilee. 
And there is no greater example, I feel, in Scripture that drastically compares what they were expecting versus who Jesus wound up being than the words that are laid out in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. They read like this. Jesus' teaching says, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even pagans do that? You see, looking at it objectively, knowing the history of Israel and what they were expecting, I could understand their confusion. I could see where they would have been disappointed in who Jesus was. You see, he came with great humility like the world had never seen before. But what happened is the people around him, other than a select few, wound up mistaking his humility for weakness. And there were some even who eventually said that, you know what, it was that weakness of Jesus that ultimately led him to his arrest, to his trial, to his, and to his death. And that's why he went to the cross, because he, he was a weak leader. But humi- that humility was mistaken for weakness, and I think we see it that way too. I think we look at him a lot of times, and we mistake that humility for weakness. If, if, you, if you think about it, it's hard to follow this type of leader. Men, it's hard for us to surrender our lives to Jesus because we see the picture that culture has painted for us. What is the picture that culture has painted? Picture has said that Jesus is blonde with straight, long flowing hair. He doesn't wear steel-toed boots, but he chooses sandals instead. He is kind of like that hippie wearing a dress. Uh, He speaks in eloquent poetry everywhere that he goes. He has a beard that is so clean and so kempt that it's like you're looking at a perpetual five o'clock shadow. And of course, this leader drives a cabriolet and he listens to a ton of Elton John. This is the leader that culture has painted Jesus to look like. If you do a search, a Google search on Jesus Christ, the pictures that you see don't show up to be a leader worth following. The pictures that you see wind up looking like just a weak guy who you'd like to punch in the face. And you see, when, when, when women walk into a room, all of the other women in that room, they start kind of sizing up the women, but, but the questions and thoughts that go on in their mind is, oh, I like that belt. I wonder if she got that at Charlotte's Bruce. Hmm, those are nice shoes, but I think it would have gone better with this pair that I have in my closet. I think she could have done better with that choice. Or, you know what, she got her hair cut, and I know that that's the mom cut and everything, but it's really not flattering to her in whatever way. Like, that's what women start to do, and they start to process When men see another man walk into the room, there is one thing and one thing alone on his mind. Can I take him? Like that's the only thing that they're thinking. A dude walks in and and you are automatically thinking, if we were put in the octagon right now, who would come out victorious? That's how men look at it. And when men look at Jesus and when a lot of us look at Jesus, we think to ourselves, I could take him. If it was one-on-one, if me and this guy were in the octagon, I would take him. I would walk out victorious. And so for men particularly, it's hard to bow down and worship a guy you know you can take. There's just something weird about worshiping a guy that you could beat up. And you see, ultimately, Jesus' life on this earth, what it was, was it served as an example of his incarnate humility. It served as an example of how we are to live our lives day to day. We see this example and we say, that's what we're supposed to model. But we cannot stop there. It is so important that we understand and know 
all of God's word, that we see it in its fullness. A lot of times when life gets difficult and things start to hit the fan and, and everything just starts going awry, we'll open up the book and we'll go straight to the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. We'll read a few each day or every couple days. We'll close the book and we'll, and we'll call it good and, and we'll hope that God will come through for us in that way. But there is such a bigger pe- picture of who Jesus is than just those two books. You see, when we don't take all of God's word in its fullness, in its wholeness, we begin to either worship a partial image of our God or we begin to worship an incorrect image of our God. And what's great about the book of Revelation is it brings a holistic view to our picture of who Jesus is through the, through the story of the white rider. Now, in Revelation, a lot of people will consider Revelation a very spooky book. They'll say, oh, Revelation, isn't, isn't that the book about, you know, getting barcodes on your head so that when you go through the line at Safeway, the Antichrist can scan you? You're like, no, 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 no. That's not what the book of Revelation is about. Now, given some of the people who teach the book of Revelation can get kind of weird and creepy sometimes, but the book of Revelation is incredible because it is all about Jesus. Line one says the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the book of Revelation is given to us in order to help bring that full, complete picture of who God is. The white rider is not the humble servant. Though Jesus still is that humble servant as he was in the Gospels, the white rider isn't that humble servant. He is a different picture altogether. And so we, we take a look We read books like the book of Acts, and we read books like the Revelation in order that we would see Jesus in that full, complete picture. So open up your Bibles, Revelation 19.11, and we are going to take a look at what Jesus would look like if we were to see him today. It reads, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes... Okay. When we read God's word, there's no way that we can get away reading it like that. We have to, every time we pick up God's word, we have to feel what it was like to be there in that moment. We have to sense and breathe in the intensity. So let's read God's word as it was meant to be experienced. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. All right, now in the movies, who rides the white horse? The good guy, that's right. The good guy always rides the white horse. He always comes in. Everyone else is, you know, riding the black horse, the brown horse, you know, the red horse. The good guy comes in at the most necessary moment on the white horse to bring justice to whatever situation he finds himself in. You see, all the old westerns, they rip this off from Jesus. They owe, they owe royalties to the book of Revelation because they copied it from the very beginning. Jesus was the good guy in the very beginning riding the white horse. You see, with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has the name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. I love this picture. Because you see Jesus here standing up there, and it's a white robe that he's wearing. What kind of a guy shows up to a fight in a white robe? A guy who knows the other dude has no chance. Jesus shows up to the fight knowing that he is not even going to break a sweat conquering Satan and evil. But there is one stain, and that stain is blood just on the hem of his robe. But that blood doesn't belong to him. That blood belongs to the enemy. And let me just say this. 
Men, if a guy ever shows up to a fight and he uses blood as an accessory, run away because that is a dude you do not want to fight. That is a dude you do not want to take. You are going to lose that battle every single time. It says, the armies, the, <clears throat> let's see, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. That's, that's us. That, that's us. We are Jesus' posse. It says, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation. So parents, if you have a four-year-old or whatever, next time that four-year-old boy is running around with scissors or some sharp object protruding from his neck, do not stop him. He is pretending to be Jesus. What he is doing is biblical, okay? He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So the explanation for the winepress is what would happen is you would have the winepress and you would throw grapes on the winepress and then you would, you would stomp them and the juice would go flowing. Well, the illustration here is that in the same way that the juice flows, you, God's enemy will be trampled and struck down underneath his heel and the blood of the enemy will flow forth declaring victory for Jesus. That's what that part means. It says, <clears throat> on, the ro- on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not passive Jesus. This is not your hippie Jesus. This, my friends, is ultimate fighter Jesus. This is open up a can, Jesus. If you have problem in your prayer life because you're like, God, just nothing's happening. God can't do anything. He, he's too weak to accomplish. Pray to this guy because this is a guy who will show up and will be victorious every single time. Pray to this Jesus, this, old, this UFC Jesus. He can actually do something. He is a leader truly worth following. Now, there is no character in all of cinema, in all of story, in all of, in all of epic tales that is, that is more favorite than the character, to me, than the character of Maximus from Gladiators. Men, can I get a oh, 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 gladiator, right? Maximus. He is the ultimate warrior. There's a scene even in there when he's meeting his, war with, when he's meeting his friend and he says, how are my men? He says, they're, they're fat and they're tired. Will they fight? For you, they will fight tomorrow. Maximus is the great leader. And I am proud to say that not even Maximus stands a chance against this Jesus. He will crush him every single time. He is the ultimate leader worth following. You see... If we, if we see Jesus as the humble, marginalized servant, and then we see him as the glorified God, the, the leader worth following, the ruler, it's not simply enough to just recognize that he's worth following. What happens is, is I think a lot of times we wind up choosing sin. We see him as the perfect leader, but then we choose our sin instead. And, and we focus on other priorities. Quite often, other things that are important, that are worth giving time to. But we fail to make Jesus the leader and the Lord over all areas of our lives. And so we, we, we decide to reserve certain aspects for ourselves. Like in the type of company that we keep, those who have influence over us. We decide, you know, I'm going to be ruler and, and Lord over that area. And Jesus is going to play subservient to that. Or, or in how we spend our money. We refuse to submit ourselves to the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Or in how we work out our sexuality. We say, no, like I, I work that part out. I'm not going to submit to the leadership and the lordship of Jesus. There are so many different areas, what relationships we keep in general. And so what winds up happening is we say, yes, Jesus, you are the Lord, you are the leader of the spiritual part of my life. And we kind of push him to the side and say, 
This other area, this is reserved for me. This area is reserved for you. So when I show up on, at church on Sunday, that's your time, Jesus. When I go to work, that's my time. When, when I do my D group, that's your time, Jesus. And then when, you know, when, when I'm out, you know, watching the game, that's my time. And so for me, it breaks down into this. And see if you relate to this. I, I trust Jesus most, more often than not with the areas that are easy for me to give up. And that translates into this. I trust Jesus with the areas that mean the least amount to me. That's how that works itself out in my life. And I think, you know, I'm in a D group. I'm leading a D group of guys. And just a side note, if you are not in a D group here at Mountain Park, get into a D group. Do life with other people as we all pursue to know Jesus more. They're out in Hello MP. They'll direct you to a D group. Use our website, but join a D group. The D group I lead right now, we are going through the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan. And, and I think he hits this idea of this area is for me, this area is for God. I'll follow Jesus here, but I won't follow him here. I think he hits it on the head when he says this in his book. He says, when I was in high school, I seriously considered joining the Marines. This was when they first came out with the commercials, the few, the proud, the Marines. What turned me off was that in those advertisements, everyone was always running. Always. And I hate running. But you know what? I didn't bother to ask if they would modify the rules for me so I could run less. And maybe also do fewer push-ups. That would have been pointless and stupid, and I knew it. Everyone knows that if you sign up for the Marines, you have to do whatever it is they tell you. They own you. Somehow, this realization does not cross over to our thinking about the Christian life. Jesus didn't say that if you wanted to follow him, you could do it in a lukewarm manner. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus asks for everything, but we try to give him less. Ouch. Think of it this way. It's, it's so easy for us to find ourselves in this situation. Think of, you've gone to college, you've educated yourself, You've gone to post-college. You've got your master's. You've done everything necessary to step into the line of work. And you have a dream company and a dream job at that dream company. And the time comes where they find your resume and they call you in. You go through. You answer all the questions. Everything is perfect. And then at the end they say to you, is there anything else that you'd like to ask us or anything that you think we ought to know? And you say, as a matter of fact, there is. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I don't know if you're cool with this or not, but when I'm at work, I actually prefer to only work 50% of the time. The other time, I, I reserve for my personal time. I, I just work better that way. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I actually need more lunchtime than the average worker. You see, I've adopted the, uh, the Hobbit diet, and I observe breakfast, second breakfast. I observe 11 C's, lunch, afternoon tea, and supper. So um, I, I can't cut it with just the one hour for lunch. Um, so if you're cool with that. Also... Um, I don't really enjoy accountability, so if you were planning on putting someone um, to, to kind of check up on me and see if I'm doing well, I don't enjoy that. I don't work well with accountability, so I'm, I'm going to be my own boss, and I'll let you know uh, how things are going. And, and lastly, um, I noticed that you're in all PC environment. I only work on Macs. So. Now, that last one I can kind of understand. That a little bit makes sense to me, but how ludicrous is it thinking about that when we put it in terms that we step into nearly every day or that relate to our every day, it's like, oh my goodness, how do I, how do I ever, that, that, that wouldn't fly. And some of you HR people even hear me right now and you're like, you're cringing because you want to give that person a pink slip before they're, even, before they're even hired. Or maybe you have someone who is kind of like that and you're doing everything in your power to make sure they get that pink slip because it's such a ludicrous way of approaching your work. But Francis Chan is right. It seems like 
we don't make the crossover from these real-life examples to our spiritual lives. It just doesn't cross over. What does it say about us when we become selective about the areas we choose to pursue God and the areas we choose to not pursue Him? More importantly, a question that I'll ask about myself, what does it say about me? What does it say about my picture of Jesus, my picture of God, when there are certain areas that I say, yes, you can be Lord of this area, but no, you can't be Lord of this. What does that say about how I see God? Ultimately, the answer to those questions is irrelevant. Because there is something, there is something so great and so wonderful, it makes those questions irrelevant, the answers. Jesus is already Lord over all. He rules over everything. There is nothing in this earth that doesn't fall under his subjugation. Jesus is Lord and ruler of everything that we see. We simply have the option to choose to submit to that or to go our own path, to go our own way. Colossians 1, 15 through 18, it states this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is already Lord of all. And he even says so himself in the book of Matthew, the 28th chapter. He says this. These are Jesus' own words. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He knows that he is the ruler of all. And he invites us into his kingdom. He invites us to come underneath his subjugation. Because he is a good God. Who gives good good things to the people who follow him. He is a righteous ruler. He is truly a leader worth following. Not only is he a leader worth following... But a good leader gives clear directions. And so if you finish up that, that, chap, that chapter of Matthew 28, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, and these are our marching orders. This is what he's calling us to. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. I love Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. If you've got kids, think about this. Is there any more joy or pleasure that you experience as a parent than when you give your child an instruction to do something and without grumbling, without complaining, without talking back, they submit and they go off and they do what it is that you've asked of them. Is there anything that brings you more pleasure as a parent? Likewise, is there anything that draws more grief and more frustration out of you than when you have given clear instructions to your child and against your will, they dig their heels in and they refuse to submit themselves to what it is you are calling them to do? Is there anything as a parent that draws more frustration than that scenario? You see, should we expect God to respond any differently as our, humble fa- as our, as our glorious Father? 
Should we expect his response to be any different when we humbly submit and say, yes, Lord, I will follow what you've called me to do. There is a joy and a pleasure that he gains from us following what he has called us to do. And there is a grief and his heart breaks when we dig our heels in and we refuse to submit ourselves to what he has called us to do because ultimately he is a good God and he knows that when we listen, he is able to bless us with good things. You see, it isn't enough to just have a full picture of Jesus, to have the humble incarnate picture and to have the glorious exalted picture. It isn't enough to just see the entire view. You see, James 2.19, it reads like this. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. What you do when you simply say, yes, I believe in God, and it ends there, is you are on the same level as the demons who acknowledge that, yes, there is a God. There is one God. You are on the same level as that. And what happens at that point is we almost start to treat faith as as an accessory. And like Batman has the utility belt, and depending on what fix he has found himself in, he pulls whatever accessory he needs off of his utility, utility belt to use it in that moment and get himself out of a jam. We say, my faith is the exact same way. We bring it down, we put it on our utility belt of life. And when we get ourselves in a jam and when we get ourselves in a fix, we say, all right, here it goes. And then we apply as needed until... You know, until whatever it is, is is finished, is fixed, is done. You see, faith isn't an accessory. You must see the full picture of Jesus and then the next step. Reject sin in every single area of your life. Why? Because when we decide to follow Jesus and reject sin and submit ourselves to his authority... We then gain the glorious and the wonderful responsibility of now leading others in the same manner that we have chosen to follow Jesus. We have the responsibility as Christians to now lead others to the glorious Jesus that we know and we love. And you might say, but I'm not a leader. I don't have people following me. That doesn't apply to me. Well, there's areas of leadership that I think we pass over very easily and and I certainly ignore or don't realize are there every single day. What are those areas? Well, think about your work. We have a responsibility as Christians to lead others in our workplace in terms of how we do our work, the excellence in which we approach our work, to not do it half-heartedly, to make Jesus the focus point and the center of any glory and any honor that comes our way because we have to lead people who don't know him to him. And how are they going to see it if you don't do it, if we don't do it? Family. I'm not just talking about your immediate family. I'm talking about your extended family, the big umbrella. There will come a time in every single family where there will be great tragedy or death that strikes. And it impacts every single person in that family. And it is our job. It is my job. It is your job as a Christian to be the leader in that moment and provide the biblical answers of life and death to people who are so desperately needing hope in that moment and for the rest of their lives. You know, sin winds up undermining our ability to leave. That's why we have to reject it. It undermines it. Sin undermines our ability um, to lead our families. Sin undermines our ability. When we mistreat our spouse, it undermines our ability to lead our spouse, to, to partner with our spouse. When, when we begin to... Um, when, <clears throat> 
when we begin to uh, start cutting corners and, as a manager, when we begin to start doing things in a dishonest fashion, our employees will see that, and very soon they will follow our lead, and they will begin to do things in a dishonest manner and in a dishonest fashion. When we, when we begin to, uh, as students, when we begin to start taking and abusing drugs in order that we might gain an edge by either staying up longer or making our mind more sharp, other students will see us and they will start following that example and doing the same thing that we are doing. It undermines our ability as parents. When you badmouth your spouse or when you badmouth your ex-spouse in front of your child, not only are you undermining your ability to lead them, but you are giving the child ammunition and all the reason to not listen to your spouse. You see, sin, it undermines us. It cuts us down in every way possible. And for me, this statement kind of sums it all up. It says, be careful little feet where you go, because it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. And as I'm prepping this message and I think about this saying, my wife and I, we are going to have our first child in May. We are going to be parents for, for the first time, and I'm pretty excited too. But I look at this statement, and I think to myself, as a father, I know I'm not going to do it right. I know I'm going to mess up. I know I'm going to experience failure. It's going to be the toughest job that I've ever had, but I have to get this. Be little, be careful little feet where you go because it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow and you would listen to this message this hard teaching of of leadership and, and being a leader in every scenario scenario and setting of your life and you would say dave i have already blown it i have lost the ability to lead my family i have undermined my ability to lead at work I have made choices in my life that undermine my ability to speak truth into my extended family and into my friends. And what I would say is, I have too. I have made mistake after mistake after mistake in my own life that has undermined my ability to lead those in my sphere of influence. But in the words of Alan from one of his messages a couple weeks ago, he said, can't we just try? And that's what we have to do. We try. Can't we just try? Can't we step into it? You know, for me, in even preparing this message, two nights ago, as I, was, I went to bed and, you know, I had been working on the message, and I woke up in the middle of the night. And I don't know if you experienced this, but, but I experienced it in a very intense way on Friday night. I woke up. I couldn't back to, get back to sleep. I was restless. And all of a sudden, I started hearing those voices of deceit and lies, like Alan talked about the enemy, the dragon, in, in, in the first section of, of the end. And I heard him come and say, well, who would want to follow you? You have disqualified yourself. There is no hope for somebody to follow you. You have lost all credibility with the people that you were called to lead. And I start hearing that. And I start believing that. And I start thinking to myself, how am I ever going to recover? And that's when our glorious leader steps in with the words that we all need to hear. He says in John 16, 33, he says, I have told you these things. He's talking to his disciples, talking about his death and resurrection, that he's going to be go to be crucified. He says, I have told you these, these things that you may, so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So when we hear those voices saying, you have lost credibility, you're not worth following, you are a failure, Jesus comes in and he says, you will have trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. The victory that I secured, 
the leadership that I step into. You come with me. I don't go alone. You come with me. That victory belongs to you. The battle, we will fight it together and we will crush the enemy. And you will be a leader worth following because you are following me. Satan's plan is to take us out. He wants to tell us that all hope is lost. He wants to tell you and he wants to tell me that we have no ability to serve Christ. That our failure has disqualified us from the great race that we have ultimately lost. But hallelujah church, we have a champion. We have a Maximus, a great Maximus. We have a white knight. We have a leader who has secured victory and invites us to ride with him. Who calls us to mount up on white horses and to follow him into battle. And each of us is dressed in finest white linen, showing no fear in the signs of evil. We stand up, we reject sin, we watch the dragon as he is cast down underneath the heel of our great leader, crushed once and for all, his blood flows serving as this, showing us that his blood accomplishes nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ shed for once and for all it covers a multitude of sin and because of that blood we stand in victory with our glorious Savior we have a great leader we have a risen lamb who is worth following in every single area of our lives and so what is our response here and now today this is a difficult teaching what is our response our response is this to repent of our sin Call on the name of Jesus and let loose the chains of lies and the deceit that trap us in the darkest parts of our hearts, in the darkest parts of our minds. To confess our sins of shortcoming, to confess our sins of shortcomings. And when we do that, the enemy loses all hold that he has had on our lives. We come forward to the cross and we write down and leave at the foot of the cross the areas that we have experienced failure claiming victory in the name of Jesus knowing that we can rise up and be a leader worth following we light a candle to extinguish the darkness in our lives and realize that lighting that candle and letting the Christ light shine as we lead others to know and to follow him and we take communion together we remember what Jesus accomplished. And if you are here with friends, if you are here with family, if you are a parent, a mother, a father, stand with your friends, stand with your family, take communion together, lead your friends and family in this way, remembering what Christ has done. If you are not a Christian, if you have not taken that step and said, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, become a Christian today. Say a prayer and just say, Jesus, I make you Lord of my life and I trust you and I want to live for you. And you will become a Christian and you will stand with the rest of us in victory one day over the enemy. Church, the kingdom is here. And we have a leader who is preparing a place for each and every one of us. Those who believe will enter the Father's house. He will come in on a white horse, bringing healing and restoration, and we will share in the victory forever and ever with our glorious Jesus, who is the ultimate leader worth following. This is our challenge as Christians. We will respond, but before we do that, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. And Lord Jesus, we ask that this time here and now, would be given to you in sacrifice. God, that we would kick the enemy to the curb and we would respond positively towards you, calling on the name of Jesus to make us men and women worth following in our lives. We love you, we thank you, we trust you, and we submit to your lordships. And it's in the name of Jesus that we humbly pray. Amen.